0: Hello and
1: welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm here today with Martin Chorzempa, a research fellow who recently joined the Peterson Institute of International Economics and is based in D.C. He's a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School and previously worked at the China Finance 40 Forum, a leading Beijing-based think tank. Martin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into internet finance and um, the research you've done on this, I'm I'm first curious if you could get a little bit of background into your China story.
2: Uh, I was currently working in Europe doing work on financial regulation and state-owned banks And it was pretty clear that although this was the time when when it seemed like Europe was driving much of what's happening uh, in global markets because of worries about the euro crisis, it was pretty clear that for the future of finance, which I'm most interested in, China was going to be probably the most influential player going forward. So I said... Hey, I really want to go understand how this works because there's a huge barrier to entry to having a clue about what's actually happening in China, uh, including a big linguistic barrier. So I applied for a Henry Luce Foundation scholarship, got it, and then uh, learned Chinese, worked at uh, CCER at the Peking University for about six months, learning Chinese, getting familiar with with finance Mandarin. And then I worked at CF40 for about a, a year and a half.
1: So, do you have a favorite finance Mandarin word?
2: Mm, that is a good question. I would say something like uh, something like that Keynesianism
1: solid um and uh so so why finance in the first place
2: well my uh I grew up in a banking family, my great grandfather started a small small um community bank in Minnesota at the time it was a more rural area of of Minnesota so I've kind of been steeped in finance for for generations and the main part the main reason is that I see how important it is to uh, to communities and the economy so uh, if anyone wants to start a business, they need finance. If you want to you know, save up for a house, just about any important decision people make in their lives is influenced by how well the financial system is working. And although uh, ideally you don't really have to see it very much, ideally it just kind of works and there's a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure it's well regulated and the incentives work in the correct way so that uh, so that everything functions really well. So I just I just think it's interesting and important.
1: So one of the most salient features of the, the Chinese financial universe is that half of Chinese have no credit history, uh, which, is a, which is a big impediment for folks getting loans, um, starting businesses, buying houses, uh, whatever else you want to do with capital. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how uh, China got to this state and, and fell behind a lot, uh, fell behind on this metric of where many other well most other developing, uh, most other developed and many other developing countries are are now
2: sure well I- I- in a way it's uh it's it's almost like it never started so uh, for for much of the early history of the people's republic of china there was only one bank it was the people's bank of china and uh, and that really only functioned as a uh, as a sort of like a check business in a way, it's like the plan determined by communist party officials determined who which entities get what money, and then those funds were just disbursed to in, in whatever amounts the plan uh, prescribed to those places. So it, in a, in that kind of environment, as you might imagine, there's no consumer credit. You can't go out to a bank and get a loan uh, to buy a refrigerator that you can't afford yet. Or uh, or there and there was no mortgage market because there was no private ownership of homes. Really, you you would get your home assigned by the work unit, and and therefore when you have a country like the U.S. where people, especially in you know the 50s, 60s, were were buying all sorts of things on credit and building up credit histories, China never really was able to do that because there wasn't a consumer credit market and and for a long time even when there was a little bit of a consumer credit market and a mortgage market uh, when uh, say in the in the 90s some of the state owned enterprise reforms led to there being a, uh, a more of a private home ownership market there really wasn't the kind of system in place uh, that allowed sharing of data between financial institutions so what's really important for making the market work is if I get a loan from Bank of China and, and I pay it back and then I go later on and I apply, I get a better deal maybe from uh, ICBC, that ICBC knows that I got a loan in the past and I paid it back and therefore I'm probably a pretty good credit risk. They should give me a good priced loan. But if there's no sharing, then you have on the consumer side that problem you don't know have a way to prove to other lenders that you are a good credit risk but also if i defaulted on that bank of china loan and i'm a bad credit risk and i come to icbc they might have no idea that i'm a bad uh, credit risk unless they were able to get information from their in a way from their rival and and these systems are very difficult to set up and china's been working hard at it the the main system for this in China was set up around 2004. So they they have had a much shorter history, much less time to build up these kind of credit scores compared to other countries.
1: So I guess it's not really fair to compare them to, um, you know, countries that have uh, had capitalist systems uh, for a few hundred years now. But do you have any sense of um, how Vietnam, how other second world um, post-communists, well, let's... Let's leave that discussion for another time. But other post-communist countries have uh, have tackled this issue.
2: I've been I've read a little bit about it. That's not a, uh, that's something I I would like to do moving forward in in my research agenda. But I do get the sense that other countries like Vietnam are doing uh, somewhat similar methodologies and uh, and generally developing countries have uh, unlike the United States where we have the credit bureaus that manage the information sharing. Those are private companies. Often it's actually the central bank. In these countries, that that runs the uh, the credit bureaus, and that's true for China as well. So, in a way, you know, the World Bank was very influential in advising China on how to start developing these systems, and they're following, in a way, this playbook for uh, for emerging market countries. I think I think other ones are broadly similar.
1: So, could you talk a little more about the uh, the impediments? You ta- you mentioned earlier how the banks. Um, see this information as a competitive advantage and don't want to share. But what else is, is getting in the way of uh, building credit history?
2: Sure. Well, uh, I would first separate uh, two different types of, of data uh, to be some structure on on the question and uh, one side is traditional borrowing histories this is the stuff that is generally used in the united states this is just uh, what's your history of taking out loans and and paying them back and in china uh, at least for regulated financial institutions this works pretty well you know if you've actually had a credit card in China already and you uh, and you've been borrowing on it then then this is, there isn't really too much of an impediment there because the whole legal system and regulatory system and technical systems those have all been built up the problem is that Chinese for so many years have been using informal credit instead of a formal financial institution credit so if you borrowed from say a small loan company or a peer-to-peer lender or an informal loan shark in your local area then there's no data sharing whatsoever partially because there's there's no technical system that has included uh, many of these players together so that's one one side that's the main reason why this uh, this financial borrowing history data isn't shared and hasn't been built up. Again, this all stems back to uh, the fact that there hasn't been a good consumer credit market from banks for a long time in China. But then the other side is, we can say, is there a way to leapfrog and to generate credit histories and, uh, and credit credit scores that allow you to lend more easily to people without necessarily having to wait until they've all borrowed because the borrowing in the first place is the hard part. If you don't have a credit history, you know, a bank isn't going to be very excited about lending to you. But, and, and there we can potentially use all sorts of other data about you to get a sense of how good of a credit risk you are. But all this so, data, so let's, uh, yeah.
1: So, so let's talk about the biggest, uh, the biggest entrant into that market, Alibaba's, uh, sesame credit. I just wanted to let everyone know that I clock in at a respectable 619, you know, not top of the line credit score, but, you know, I could, I could be looking a lot worse. Um, so so where is Alibaba getting this number for me um, and and what is their what is their vision for what uh, this credit score can do?
2: Sure. so uh, Alibaba has about uh, they, they say about five different areas of Evaluation that determine your score. Uh, the, these are quite vague, and it's unclear uh, what exactly uh, what exactly they mean. There are things like your your borrowing history, which you would expect, but other things like the strength of your social network. I think it's like uh or something like that. And uh, but but generally, the sense I get is that this is data that Alibaba has on you. So if you use Alipay, they will look at you at your the payments that you make in and out and get a maybe back out a sense of what your income is likely to be they'll look at your uh, your purchase history on taobao which again might help give them an idea of how much income you have and then uh, if you've done any borrowing from from alibaba then then that will go in there too you can choose to share other data with them but generally the the main crux of uh, of what they're using is alibaba data
1: so uh, a Black Mirror episode from last season called Nose Dive. I don't know if you caught this, but was basically yes um, a dystopia of every single person rating every interaction they encounter, um, and the uh, the main character starts uh, getting an attitude and ends up getting thrown in jail because um, enough people give her such low ratings that she loses her house and, and her whole. Um, you know, her friends and her whole life falls apart. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's certainly an optimistic story here of of these numbers being created from alternative data and then giving, um, and then giving giving uh, Chinese people the opportunity to get uh, better rates on, on loans than they would have otherwise. But what's the uh, what's the potential um, uh, dark side of using uh, all these different uh, uh, you know data data streams and, and giving power to private companies like this?
2: yeah so uh, that, that's a really good question there are uh, There are a lot of potential downsides mainly around privacy and uh, potential discrimination around data so if if you think about generating a score, you said, how does Alibaba come up with this number uh, it, if you're calculating based on uh, pretty clear financial information like someone's borrowing history you know it, there there's a pretty compelling Case to say that your borrowing history shouldn't really be uh, shouldn't really be something that private. I mean uh, that there, there's a good reason to share this among institutions because everybody overall gets gets a better credit market but when you start getting into things like what your shopping history is who you're paying and all that that gets into much more personal aspects of of an individual's life and you don't necessarily want to share that with a lender you might uh, you might begin to you know you, if you think about the incentives uh the incentives for Credit scoring based on traditional metrics is you, know, you you establish a history that you've borrowed before and you pay everything back. It's pretty pretty straightforward. You say you demonstrate that you're a dependable person, but once they start basing it on your shopping history and the people that uh, that you interact with. Then you start to say, well, do I want to interact with somebody who has a bad score? You know, I know they're a good friend and everything, but Alibaba says they have a bad score, so maybe I don't want to be sending, splitting bills and sending them payments because I can lower my score. And you have all sorts of incentive effects that start to look look a little more worrisome. And maybe if they're tracking your location and some of these other sites, then you start to worry much more about privacy and it becomes much more subjective. Uh, because it's, uh, it's unclear when, for example, they're using these machine learning algorithms that put in a ton of data and try to generate a statistical score. It, it's not not clear why the machine made that decision. It might be that there was some correlation at some point that was capturing something else that they didn't even realize, and then uh, that might stick in the model for a long time, and, uh, and it might actually not lead to a better score.
1: It's it's important to emphasize for for listeners who maybe don't live in China just the um the the amount of times over the course of a day you would interact with Alibaba products. Um so so Taobao, as Martin mentioned earlier, is like a, a giant Amazon um where you're buying more stuff than you need. Um they have investments in in uh, products all You know in 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 hundreds of different companies so every time i get on an ofo um i am uh you know feeding data into uh whether or not i'm riding bike every single day uh i mean the amount of uh data these these companies have is is really astounding and um you know as much as americans may be scared of facebook knowing everything they do um there's a there's a there's a different level of uh uh pervasiveness that uh these chinese conglomerates can can really dig into which you know has has good and bad sides as you as you mentioned the um uh, the the optimistic and the pessimistic story of these credit scores um is yeah. really uh is really a, a I think a, a unique development in the in the world
2: yes and i would add as as well that Actually, many of these companies, at least in the United States, and also to some extent in China, that claim that they're using millions or thousands of data points and uh, advanced. They use all sorts of buzzwords like machine learning, AI, big data, algorithm, all all of these these words, and they they haven't actually had that great of results. So my sense, after looking at this for a few years is that actually the holy grail, the best thing you can do is just base it on traditional borrowing data. And, and the advantage of this alternative, all this alternative data and extra monitoring stuff is mainly can you generate and give credit to people that don't have a regular borrowing history? And the goal should be you use this to develop a borrowing history that is traditional like FICO in the United States, that's the main uh, provider of credit scores. And then you don't really have to look at all this alternative stuff anymore. So it's like an interim stage to get you to where, say, we are in the United States, for most people.
1: So, so recently, there's been um, some, some domestic pushback here in China and you, um, w- with regards to the Sesame credit score. Uh, and you wrote in one of your um, pieces that interviews with current and former uh, PBOC, uh, the People's Bank of China officials, suggest that the pervasive use of the Sesame score as a proxy for trustworthiness. Far beyond the intention to help in the provision of credit, is viewed as an overreach of the credit scoring authority. So, could so you know often you hear the um, the narrative in 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 the West that Chinese people don't care about privacy. Um, but could you could you delve into that into that question a little deeper?
2: Sure. So, uh, on the privacy side, <clears throat> what we're seeing is a change in China. There's more of a privacy consciousness than in the past and part of this is just a result of accumulated, you know, uh, frauds and and problems. So uh, I'm sure you've experienced by now in China all sorts of fraudulent text messages and uh, and possibly also emails and phone calls trying to sell you wealth management products or something, and you wonder how did they get my uh, my information? How did they get my phone number? And part of this is because companies are leaking like a sieve. They, these companies are are leaking information and selling uh, their clients' information for for money so that they can uh, so they can profit from it, and then other companies then use that data to try and. Uh, try and give you say pretend that they're your bank or or something else. And Chinese people are just getting tired of this. And uh, the way to get around that is hopefully to improve the the privacy so that you have to give less of your private information, say your contact information or anything else, to the companies you interact with, and that those companies, once you give it to them, will not share it with uh, with other ones. Uh, that's one one side of, of the p of the puzzle. And then uh, the other side. is is with the regulatory authorities. And in this case, what we have is, you know, the the reason that Sesame Credit exists is that the central bank realized it was not going to be able to add much of this alternative data to its own credit bureau and said maybe Alibaba can help do some supplementing and improve financial inclusion. And they did the same thing with Tencent and and Ping An and others. Alibaba's just been the most successful so far and well, what has happened is that th- they wanted to use this to expand credit but in, in alibaba has used it uh, and financial sorry has used it far more than for credit it's used uh, to waive a deposit uh, for uh, say when you're checking into a hotel or renting a car or even for a dating app or getting a visa to singapore all these other things and the chinese government says who gave alibaba the authority to say whether someone is uh, is better or worse risk for a, say, a Singaporean visa or a car or something else. They said th- these licenses are generally meant to deal with credit. Now this this does bring up an interesting point, which is well, you know, how pervasive credit is in the modern economy you know when you're you might not think about it as credit when you are renting a car but actually in a way they're providing you credit they're hoping that you will return that car in the right uh in in a good state that you won't crash it that you won't steal it uh, that you will if there's some sort of problem you'll be able to pay back and generally in the united places like the united states because we have credit cards all over the place, we don't really see many of these deposits. We just come in and you know you check into a hotel and they swipe your credit card. And that's there so that they don't really have to trust you. They know that if you put some charges on the room and try to run away they can charge your credit card but in countries like China where credit cards are not so common this is a much bigger bigger problem and and China's authorities are really struggling with how to create this balance of uh, of having more uh, seamless economic transactions through credit but also limiting the power of private companies in being the ones who determine who's eligible for what
1: so now let's turn to uh, another one of your research focuses, the uh, the the peer-to-peer lending universe in China. Um, so so what what is this business and, and and what need is it trying to fill?
2: Sure. Uh, the The main area that this fills is is the what I mentioned before, this gap in the consumer credit market. In the past, if you're a Chinese and you want to borrow, uh, borrow money for a, either just this month, your your income didn't match your expenses, or you want to borrow to start a business, or you want to borrow to buy a car or something like that, uh, there were very few options available for you. And uh, generally, the ones available uh, through your local Um, loan shark or something like that are going to be very high interest rate they're going to be very expensive and and low tech in a way you got to kind of know somebody get vouched for and all that and the peer-to-peer lending space came up to fill some of that enormous demand for credit that uh, that exists all throughout the chinese economy That's one side of it. The other side of it is the people who are providing the funds that are ending up being lent. And these are people that in the past would have been limited to very low uh, interest rate deposits, where for much of the 2000s, you might have actually had, if you include inflation uh, in your calculation, you have lost purchasing power if you've been saving your money. So if you saved 100 yuan in in, in 2000, and you kept it in the bank until uh, until 2004, or 2005, some, you might actually have less ability to buy stuff with that 100, uh, 100 and whatever yuan after your interest rate at the bank than you would have in the past. So saving was a losing proposition. And the peer-to-peer lenders... Uh, the the platforms that arrange the connection between people who are providing funds and people who are lending funds would uh, would give at the same time as lending at lower rates than some of the uh, some of the existing players they would return you a lot more money if you were one of the lenders on the p2p side than you would get at a, at a bank with a wealth management product or or something else and 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 so on on both sides they uh, they fulfilled this enormous demand to both find well uh, well well-paying investments and credit
1: could you could you give us a brief history of the industry uh up until the izubao development in
2: 2015 sure it's began around 2006-2007 somewhat simultaneously it really began online in the UK and then spread to the United States and 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 China. In a way peer to peer lending w- without the internet of course is something that's existed in China for for millennia. We have all sorts of references to individuals lending to each other not necessarily through banks. This is a a common Chinese historical practice as well. When things really began to t- take off was in around 2013. Uh, which is a time you might remember that uh, Yuabao became something that uh, Chinese people began to invest an enormous amount in this, this money market, online money market fund run by Alibaba. And my sense is that at, at that point, people began to trust more that they could invest money over the internet and it wasn't all going to be a scam. And that's what really led this to take off. In addition to the, the increasing amount of regulation on Uabao that lowered its returns created more demand for really high return, high risk uh, investments like P2P lending. And then uh, it began to grow at a couple hundred percent a year, maybe up to 450% a year uh, between 2013 and 2015. And then, uh, then we have Izubao which uh, although the industry continued to grow very rapidly after the Izubao Ponzi scheme uh, collapsed and w- was was in a way popped by the authorities that's when there became a real imperative that the government needs to regulate this
1: so uh, you mentioned that uh, in in your research that uh, there were public protests around the Izubao uh, the Izubao explosion could you talk about um, the story there and, and, and why this caught the government's attention in particular?
2: Yes. Uh, Izubao had reportedly around 900,000 investors. That's, that's a staggering number. And uh, as you might imagine, if you'd invested a lot of money in something like this, and then suddenly the government says this was all a fraud, you have a few. You you might have two type of reactions as an a- average Chinese person. One is the government should have stepped in earlier, should have prevented this, should have protected me as an investor. I was defrauded, and it's the government's fault. You know, a lot of people like to blame the government when something. Goes wrong. The other reaction might be, well, if if I woulda, if the government would have would not have intervened at this point, then I would have been able to pull my money out and uh, and with my big returns, and I would be okay. And so either way, uh, whether it's blaming them for not intervening earlier or for intervening when they did, uh, you have a large population of people who are very angry at the government and blame the government for for this mess and they (laughs) they probably thought that whatever response they were getting from the authorities was not enough and they tried to to organize protests this is actually although you don't really see much coverage of it because it's censored very quickly uh, this is a very common practice in china there are a lot of protests and it's one way to put pressure on the government so that they actually respond
1: And if uh, folks are interested in that topic, I would refer them back to a prior try to econ talk episode with Peter Lawrence and about his research on uh, the impact uh, of public protests in China and how the um, the government listens and or doesn't listen to um, people who get upset about stuff. Um, so, so following Izubao, you, you start writing um, that the regulation kicks in and um, this concept of too big to fail uh, starts uh, getting into the P2P world. So could you talk about the, uh, the regulatory response?
2: Yes. The regulatory response took uh, quite a long time. Uh, I've actually discovered through looking at um, the d- many different types of new finance that exist in, in China, that there's generally about a seven-year lag between the development of a new kind of internet finance technology and and the actual regulatory response. This is ab- about the rule. Uh, the rule is about seven years, and that's about the case for peer-to-peer lending. If uh, it, it started as I said, around 2006, 2007, and the real rules begin to come out in 2015, 2016. And uh, and the main rules here are about trying to prevent fraud. Uh, Another side of it it, that people somewhat cynically read into it is that they don't want P2P platforms competing with the banks. Uh, So one side of the rules is you have to keep the loans really small. You're not allowed to to lend enormous sums as a P2P platform to businesses or individuals. Part of that is competition with the banks. But another part of it is to say, you you don't want someone like if, if you and I started a P2P platform and we own a company and we took all the money that we raised from other people on the P2P platform and lent it to ourselves. Uh, and and had a highly concentrated risk. If if we default, then the whole thing goes under. That's a, a quite an unstable way of, of setting things up. The other side was to uh, was to make sure that the funds are tracked better. So they're supposed to now have keep all the funds at a bank in uh, what's called a bank custodian account and and there the bank is responsible uh, to a great extent for making sure that the funds actually are there and exist and they're not being siphoned off by the operator of the PDP platform so that if they try to run off with the uh, with the funds that people have trusted with them to invest that, uh, that that doesn't really work. The idea is to turn these guys, uh, instead of into financial intermediaries, into information intermediaries, where, these, where they're mainly trying to price the loans and match uh, borrowers and lenders rather than being a lender themselves.
1: Could you talk about the, the perverse incentives that uh, these banks face when, uh, or, or that, that the government has to work around when trying to enforce these regulations?
2: it's really tough especially if uh, as what's the case in china that the local governments end up being the main bodies regulating these things and that is if you are especially a less developed locality and these p2p platforms bring in capital from all over china that can be used to help develop your local economy that's something that's highly beneficial and the person who's bringing that money in is going to be quite influential in the community so you have to deal with this uh, this tough uh, trade-off. The other side is that this industry got so big, so fast, uh, reaching over $100 billion in outstanding loans in just a few years, that uh, if you suddenly crack down really hard and you shut all these guys down, then you have enormous protests on on your hands, uh, like the Izubao case, because people see that they're losing money, and you also create a disruption in the economy. But many of these things are policy schemes. There, they might be zombie platforms that are probably uh, defunct and insolvent, but are still operating and often still getting bigger. And uh, you really don't want it to get bigger, so the eventual problem is worse. And that creates a, a really tough. Uh, I, I would not want that job, being the regulator for for this industry.
1: When you when you talk to these folks, do they seem downtrodden?
2: Absolutely. Overworked, underpaid, so, underappreciated.
1: So one of my one of my favorite details from uh, from your writing is is talking about how uh, there are some office buildings that now refuse to rent office space to P two P lenders, uh, worried that they'll have uh, protesters outside should the uh, should the companies go belly up.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, yeah. So so could you talk about the the consolidation of the industry?
2: Sure. Well, what what's happened so far is the government has has tried to slowly push out the firms that are uh, that are not going to survive and ultimately I expect that from from a max of, you know, from many thousands of platforms in its heyday in 2013-2014 that uh, slowly the number of platforms has gone down significantly and this is a healthy thing because the many of these platforms had very little technical competency they didn't have a good way of figuring out who's a good credit risk they spent way too much money trying to get big and uh, user customer acquisition costs both for finding people who are willing to lend on your platform and uh, and finding people who want to borrow from your platform is very hard. So many of the smaller players that uh, that weren't very good are failing and disappearing. At the same time, the overall amount that the industry's lending is going up, and that's because some of the more sophisticated, larger players are being uh, successful. And the way I see it, there are going to be two kinds of firms that will be successful in the future in this market, especially as more regulation comes in and it becomes a little more difficult to just start up and operate. One is uh, the very large general-purpose guys, uh, probably related to a larger group like Credit Ease and uh, Lufax, which has kind of pivoted away from Peer-to-peer lending, which is it's a uh, related to Ping on uh, a very large group, so they have more access to data on some of this. These kind of large guys will survive, and then also I think there's room for a, a good amount of lend P2P lenders that lend based on a specific niche so they might really understand lending to a certain type of small business or a certain type of borrower or using a certain type of collateral and they might have a lot of uh, of specific expertise that helps them able helps them lend effectively in that market but uh, i think from thousands it's going to go down to probably a uh, hundred or less uh, p2p platforms eventually
1: so I want to turn to uh, the, the the money market uh, funds that you mentioned earlier, Uebao uh, and such, because I think this is an important aspect of the um, internet finance economy that folks should understand. Uh, so, could you give us a, a a bit of a taste of what's uh, what's going on with 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 Alipay and WeChat and these and these money market funds and how they've changed uh, how Chinese people think about where to put their money?
2: Yeah. So, in the past. The main place that people would put their funds would be in uh in deposits in the bank you get your uh you get your pay and it goes right into your bank. But, uh, Alipay had this, uh, at the time before it was even and financial, had this idea that you could take them, uh, you, you already were using Alipay for payments, and, but it, what you had to do to do that is you had to take money from your bank and deposit it into your Alipay account, and then, you know, you could, uh, once the money's in your Alipay account, you could send it to other, uh, users of Alipay and maybe pay for, uh, pay for things, say, uh, on, online e-commerce purchases and, and all of this so in a way it was a separate payment system and uh, the problem if you're alibaba is y- there's no incentive for people to keep money in these accounts when they do alibaba makes money because they have uh, the, the, they get interest on the funds that people have put in their Alibaba accounts. And one way to get people to put more money into those accounts is to pay them interest on it, as as, uh, bank deposits also pay interest. And they were able to give much higher interest rates, at least initially, than what you could get from a bank, and it was much more flexible. You could use those funds to pay for things online very quickly, whereas with the interest-bearing bank accounts, you generally had to lock up the funds for a few months. And so, what were the people, what
1: were the numbers? What was the uh, what was the return that folks were, were able to get through this?
2: Oh, I think it was above six percent at one point. It was it was quite high initially. I couldn't um, off the top of my head tell you the specific number, but it was many times what you would get from a bank. But what happened is uh, th- there was some suspicion that you know what are these guys investing in to be able to give you such a high return. And uh, and ultimately, it was likely some pretty risky type of investments that might be more long-term investments. And the risk there is that if a lot of people take their money out at the same time, then you have all these illiquid investments that are, that are long-term, but your li- liabilities are short-term, and you could have a kind of bank-run scenario. And uh, so regulators stepped in and have uh, have made them... Say hold reserves that, uh, that don't really pay interest that uh, to be ready so that if anybody tries to take their money out, they can uh, pay those off without having to sell long-term investments. And they've limited their ability to invest in more risky stuff. And that's made it safer, but it's also lowered the interest rate. I think the interest rate these days is probably something more like uh, 3 or 4% per year.
1: So just to give folks a sense of how easy this is to use, um, the the WeChat Pay or Alipay, which you're which you're opening every single day to to, to pay for stuff here, um, it has like a a button you can click, um, which basically says like deposit your money in Yuan or, or WeChat um, WeChat Pay or whatever the WeChat one is, um, and and forty seconds later uh, you can have uh, the the hundred. The hundred yuan that your friend just sent you for um, for dinner, um, getting a return for you, uh, which isn't something that um, the West has quite figured out how to make uh, quite as quite as seamless. Um, but it, but it, but it's really fascinating in, in that it's kind of raised the floor of of what folks would expect for um, for an investment.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great tool.
1: So, so now I wanna I wanna close on Bitcoin in China, and we can attack this from uh, uh, so many angles. Um, but I guess the, the the most recent development has been the um, the, the the relatively rapid souring of, of the Chinese government on um, uh, owning of Bitcoin, harvesting Bitcoin, um, you know, anything anything have, having to do with the uh, with the cryptocurrency. So, um, could you could you walk us through the um, the yeah. Uh, so the slow and sad breakup of uh, of the um, of the Communist Party and this uh, and this uh, magical, magical currency and, and where you see it playing out going forward.
2: Sure. I, I would actually start by going away oh, to, to set the stage for this story to go back to 2002. In 2002, Tencent created Ooh. what it called QCoin which uh, which was initially intended as you know Chinese people didn't have credit cards they were paying for all sorts of little things uh, to ten cents, so ten cent provided games and, and all this, so maybe you'd use the coins to purchase uh, items in a game you would use it to maybe buy some some little uh, get greeting card that you would send to someone with qQ and, and, and all this and and the idea was that people could buy these coins and then use them to transact in the games and you didn't need to use the, the very clunky bank, uh, clunky and expensive bank payment system for for all of this. And Qcoin was very successful. Around 2007, it got to the point where uh, other companies started to accept Qcoin and uh, even Taobao started to buy and sell Qcoin. and there were these gambling rings that built up around around Qcoin and the price started to fluctuate wildly. It started no, to become no gambling in- is
1: illegal in China
2: yeah gambling definitely illegal <laughs> in in china so all sorts of illegal activity was going on and and q coin which initially it was meant to be a fixed price a uh, certain amount of q coins equals one RMB, and it was supposed to be fixed but in the secondary market including uh including over taobao uh which which is run by uh tencent's rival alibaba there were people buying and selling these at different prices and the the coin began to function almost like a separate currency and uh, and there was a whole mania around people trying to buy up these coins and 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 uh the central government wasn't a fan and they regulated it in 2009 and said you can only use it uh you can only use these kind of virtual currencies created by gaming companies at the uh, at the company who has created these uh, these tokens and and that that ensures that this is not actually going to be a parallel currency it's not going to be a separate payment system it's just a way of uh, it's like gift cards it makes it much more uh, you could say boring because it, it's not actually uh, a fluctuating parallel currency and and you see the exact same style of Chinese people's response and government response to that with Bitcoin, which is Bitcoin really begins to take off in China in 2013. Demand in China is a huge driver for the increase in the price of Bitcoin at this time. And the central government looks at that and says, we can't control this. Uh, We can't control Bitcoin. Uh, It looks like it's a way for people to get involved in all sorts of illegal stuff that we don't like. Uh, that they couldn't do without it. And uh, and we don't want a parallel currency operating in our country that, that we can't control. So in 2013, they already cracked down and said, this is a commodity. If you want to hold it yourself, you can, but uh, but we want to, uh, you're not allowed to use it for payments. We don't want banks using it and all that. And it's just a way of nipping in the bud, something that could potentially challenge their control over the monetary payment system and also financial stability. And uh, so things cooled off quite a bit in this period. Exchanges continued to operate. Uh, the government for a while was trying to figure out how they can help the exchanges that allow people to buy and sell Bitcoin to comply with more of the anti-money laundering uh, style regulations. But ultimately, with the rise of the initial coin offering craze, where people created new digital currencies like Bitcoin to raise money, uh, they looked at just how rapidly this was developing in China and how many of these were likely to be frauds and said, this is, this looks like peer-to-peer lending all over again this looks like a lot of frauds and they decided to nip it in the bud and do an all-out ban which is harsher than any government in the world has done on the initial coin offerings and in addition to that without even really having clear regulations in this area they decided to also shut down the exchanges that allowed people to buy and sell bitcoin so you can still hold it but it's very hard to get your hands on it in china
1: now so, so we're talking. We, we we've talked a little bit about uh, the Chinese regulators, regulators sort of as a monolith. Um, but I asked you a, a personal question about about how these guys, um, uh, or, or guys and gals, um, you know, are overworked and underpaid. But could you give us a a, a bit more of a, a of a human and, and a bureaucratic sense of of what the main regulatory bodies are, who's staffing them, and kind of what their, their, their personal incentives are um, when it comes to uh, dealing with all these sorts of internet finance issues
2: yeah that's a that's that's a big question. So the most important of all the actors is definitely the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank. And these people are generally viewed as being the most pro-reform market uh, kind of bureaucracy within the Chinese government. They are concerned with uh, the stability, of the economy the well functioning payment system and also with encouraging innovation and economic development so at times if you want to regulate more tightly to ensure that things are working with stability you might lower uh, lower innovation and uh, they've they've been uh, at different times more or less uh, more or less encouraging of quote financial innovation based on how the kind of risks that they perceive versus the potential reward for the development of china's financial system then you have uh, people like the banking regulator the the um, china banking regulatory commission or cbrc and they're the main uh, regulators for the more day-to-day type of supervision of the banks but again they are mostly creating policy in beijing and the people that implement that policy tend to be people in local finance offices in the cities those guys do the most most of the dirty work of actually inspecting these companies and making sure they're complying with the rules that are laid down in more broad strokes from people in uh, in beijing
1: well I did throw a a big one at you for your last question, but I think you handled it wonderfully. Um, A final uh, question on a bit of a happier note. So say you were to uh, quit your policy analysis job today and wanted to join um, an Internet uh, finance company in China. Which one do you think is doing the the most interesting stuff and and, uh, where do you think you could have the most fun in? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think there are, there are a lot of uh a lot of good options but I would probably go with uh, the leader uh, Alibaba because they just have so much data so much expertise and uh, although sometimes they get a, a, a bad rap, uh, by uh, I, I think that they're they're doing really interesting work that uh, that is improving China's financial development and financial inclusion, and, and that would probably be a really fun learning experience.
1: Great! And with that, I think we'll uh, we'll call, call it an episode. Thanks so much, uh, Martin. This was this was fam- fantastic. Hope to have you on soon.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Early 牢牢控制 阳光照亮了我们的未来Beat the beat the beat the beat the the beat the beat the beat the the beat the beat the 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 beat the the beat the beat the the Remanchy Need the be the happy